Nine years ago, before I was even here, our church hired a consulting company named Oxano to help us establish a new mission statement to articulate what is the mission of our church. Now, the truth is that Jesus has already given every church its mission statement. It's known as the Great Commission. It's the final words that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28 to 20, uh, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, when the resurrected Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Every church that seeks to follow Jesus is trying to make disciples because that's the the mission of the church. That's the great commission Jesus has given to us. However, every church tries to make disciples in a different way. And so we hired Oxano to help us discover what is the unique way that we are called to help make disciples of Jesus. Well, after many prayerful conversations, there was a, a wonderful mission statement that's been created. I think we can show it up here, the mission statement of our church. It's to discover and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. Could you say that with me? Discover and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. Now, I wasn't here when they wrote that, but I thought it was a great statement. In fact, it reminded me of something Eugene Peterson would write, and he's one of my favorite authors. He is the uh, Presbyterian minister and scholar who helped translate the Bible into the message, uh, contemporary English translation of the Bible. And this idea of discovering means that, well, it means that we're going to search out the scriptures and discover the ways of Jesus. Because we believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God is calling us to be. If we want to know what it means to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, if we want to know what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves by treating them the way we would like to be treated, we just look to Jesus because he is the perfect example of what it means to walk in the ways of God, to be obedient to our Heavenly Father. Of course, we don't just want to discover the way of Jesus. We don't just want to have an intellectual exercise. We want to, we want to live out our faith. Jesus had a, had a brother named James. James wrote an epistle, and in his letter, James says that faith without deeds is dead. True faith, saving faith, always leads to action. So we wanted to discover and live the way of Christ. So how do we live the way of Christ exactly? Luxano helped us not only create a mission statement, but it helped us create a core four strategy. You can see they're hanging on the banners on the wall here. Worship, grow, connect, and serve. Every member of our church should be worshiping, growing, connecting, and serving as we seek to live the way of Jesus. Now, the truth is, almost every church has some version of these strategies, right? I mean, everybody has something, says something similar. Everybody's worshiping, everybody's serving, everybody's trying to grow. I mean, everybody has something like that. So a couple of years ago, our session had some heartfelt, prayerful conversations about what are the unique values, the distinct values in the way that we worship and the way that we grow and connect and serve. Now, values in any organization are the core beliefs that guide the actions and help establish the culture of an organization or a church. A value is a non-negotiable. It's not something that will change. In fact, churches are willing to lose members because of their values. If they uphold a certain value and someone doesn't like that value, well, that value is not going to change. And so we're willing to see people leave. Organizations are willing to see people leave because their values are so important to them and they don't change. Well, two years ago, we talked about what are the values in light of these, this core four strategy? 
Well, when it comes to worship, our, our value for worship is reformed worship. When it comes to, to grow, our core value is intergenerational ministry. Grow, it's intergenerational ministry. When it comes to connect, connect, our core value is compassionate community. When it comes to serve, our core value is missional living. And over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about going more in depth with each one of these values as a part of our strategy. Now this morning, I'm gonna talk about worship, specifically reformed worship. What is reformed worship exactly? Well, reformed worship is guided by reformed theology. So we need to talk about what reformed theology is before we talk about reformed worship. What is reformed theology? Well, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk and theology professor, posted his 95 thesis on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, here's a picture of Martin Luther posting those 95 theses. Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis or his 95 declarations or concerns in response to what he viewed as a non-biblical, unethical selling of indulgences that was taking place in the uh, Holy Roman Catholic Empire at the time. The Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences to help finance the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. And a priest named Johann Tetzel was actually in Wittenberg, and here was his selling pitch, his tagline. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That sold a lot of indulgences, that line did. But as theology professor Martin Luther and uh, Monk thought about this, he said, this is not in the Bible. Indulgences are not in the Bible. In fact, purgatory is not in the Bible. In fact, he, he found that the Roman Catholic Church at the time was doing a lot of things that was not in the scriptures. In fact, last fall, a group of us had an opportunity to go to Wittenberg, Germany, and we got to stand before that very same door, although actually it's been replaced with a big bronze door, and it's a huge door, and the 95 Theses are engraved in the door in Latin. And Martin Luther wrote it in Latin because he really wasn't trying to create a revolution. He was really trying to start a conversation with the Roman Catholic Church. He was seeking to reform the church, but the Pope at the time wasn't interested in reforming the church. In fact, the Pope at the time decided that Martin Luther was a heretic, he declared Martin Luther a heretic, excommunicated from, uh, Martin Luther from the church, and a bounty was placed on Martin Luther's head. Now, the fivefold cry of the Reformation, men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, the fivefold cry of the Reformation was sola gratia, or grace alone, sola fide, or faith alone, solus Christus, or Christ alone, sola scriptura, or scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, or glory to God alone. Now, these five solas can all be found in the Bible. I'm going to look at each one of these individually just for, for a moment so we can understand exactly what is Reformed theology. Grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. As Paul writes in his letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God's grace is a gift that we simply receive by faith. We don't have to add any works to obtain it. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is through faith. Now, the Roman Catholic Church at the time was teaching that it was God's grace and our works through the sacraments that helped establish and maintain a right relationship with God. Specifically, one needed to participate in the sacrament of penance if one wanted to maintain a right relationship with God. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, the sacrament of penance is basically someone has has committed a sin. And so they go to a priest and they 
individually with that priest. They confess their sins to the priest. And the priest offers an absolution or, hey, you are forgiven in the name of Christ. And then the priest offers some type of penance or some type of of work of satisfaction that they must do in order to show their repentance, to demonstrate their repentance, like they say so many Hail Marys or go do some act of service or give some kind of gift. Well, Martin Luther, as a faithful monk in the 1500s, was, was always burdened by his sins. In fact, he would spend over an hour confessing his sins to the priest. He was kind of wearing the priest out. And the priest would say, Martin Luther, you are absolved. Here is your penance. Go do your penance. Well, as Martin Luther was on his way to go do his penance, he would sin again. He would have a, a wicked thought or a selfish thought. And he'd like, oh, I've got to go confess that sin. So he'd go back to the priest. And it was a tireless experience for him. He never felt like he was right with God. Reminds me of the story of the three monks uh, who were about to graduate from the monastery and the chief monk told them in order for them to really experience God's grace, they need to go and sin and sin boldly so that they might confess their sins, be absolved, and ultimately uh, pay some type of penance. And so they went and sinned, the three of them went away, and the first uh, man comes back, the first monk comes back, and the chief monk says, well, what was your sin? And he said, well, I was in the garden shoveling, and sure enough, the spade or the shovel hit my big toe, and I said the Lord's name in vain in frustration. The chief priest, I can't believe you. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. You know, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you need to be cleansed, not only externally, but internally. What I want you to do is to go and and take a glass of holy water and consume a 12-ounce glass of holy water so you might be cleansed from the inside out. Well, the next monk comes back and he says, my child, what was your sin? And he says, well, I broke into the wine cellar and I got roaring drunk and I, I, I uh, acted foolishly last night and, and I had this horrible, horrible headache. I've got a hangover. It's all kinds of pain. And he said, well, you should because, well, Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not get drunk on wine for it leads to debauchery. And so you need that alcohol to be washed out of your system. I want you to drink an entire gallon of holy water so that it might flush through your system. Well, the third monk comes back and he says, my child, what was your sin? And he said, well, I peed in the holy water. (laughs) Careful with that holy water. (laughs) Not meant to be drunk. Well, Luther was tirelessly trying to be the faithful monk and he never felt that he could. He would try to do the acts of penance, but he found that he just kept on sinning. It never seemed to be enough. He never felt and experienced God's grace, his, God's unmerited favor. It wasn't until Luther began to, to study and teach Romans that he realized the good news of the gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, God's unmerited favor. We are saved by Christ's righteousness, not our own righteousness. For Jesus lived the life that we could never live because he lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. And then Jesus died the death that we all deserve when he died on the cross for all of our sins. And as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing we need to add to that great sacrifice. We simply receive it as the gift, the grace, the unmerited favor that it is through faith. Yes, grace alone, faith alone. Faith alone, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We accept and receive the gift of God's grace simply through faith. 
Now, saving faith will lead to acts of righteousness and and good works, but ultimately, it's just received by faith. We are found justified in the eyes of God through faith in Christ, not by what we do, but but by what Jesus has done for us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ alone. In John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We are saved by the work of Christ alone. It's not Christ's work plus our works. Only the work of Christ on the cross ultimately saves us. As Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. There's nothing more we need to do. We simply receive it as a gift through faith. And Jesus, well, it's by Jesus that we are saved. There's no other name given in heaven by which we must be saved. Every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And scripture alone is our authority in faith and life. Now, back then, the Roman Catholic Church uh, It was taught that the Pope was the head of the church. He was the ultimate authority for the church. In fact, the ruling councils of churches and the traditions of the church were often treated at the same level as scripture in the Roman Catholic Church. But Martin Luther and the earliest reformers like John Calvin saw that the church councils were making bad decisions and the Pope seemed to be making decisions that were contrary to scripture. And so for the reformers, they said, sola scripture, scriptura, scripture alone is our authority in faith and life. And they get this idea from, well, the writings of the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the men of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Now, as Presbyterians, we love the Pope. Uh, He's our brother in Christ, but he's not the head of our church. Because we read in the Bible, and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus is the head of the church. And so we follow Jesus as the head of our church. And if we want to know what Jesus would have us do, we look here, the scriptures that have been inspired by his Holy Spirit. Yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Scripture alone is our authority in faith and life. As we seek to give all glory to God alone, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. All worship is to God alone. We don't pray to saints, uh, we pray to God. God is the focus of our worship. Everything we do in worship should seek to give glory to God. In fact, all of our life should seek to give glory to God and God alone. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, when the Apostle Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's our understanding of these five solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and glory to God alone that guides our reformed worship. God is the focus of our reformed worship as we seek to give all glory to God alone. In fact, we understand that God is the prim- primary audience in our worship. We are all performing before our worship to God. God is the one that we are giving all of our worship to. Yes, the the band here in a moment will be up here in the chancel, but they're not performing for you. They're performing for God, and we are celebrating how their music is helping us draw closer to God. Now, in order for us to know what kind of worship is pleasing to God, we we have to go here. We have to see what does the Bible say should be our priorities in our worship of Almighty God. 
to find out what the Bible says, what should be our priority and how we should order our services of worship today. I would encourage you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 10 to 4, 5. It may be found on page 1269 of your Red Pew Bible. And now, just a little bit of background as you turn to page 1269 in your Red Pew Bible. Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who is his son in the faith. Timothy's father was Greek, his mother and grandmother uh, were Jewish, and Paul met Timothy while he was in Lystra, planting the church there in the city of Lystra, which is a part of the region of Galatia. And on his second missionary journey, Paul invites Timothy to come and join him to be a missionary companion, to help him plant churches. And so Timothy was with Paul when they started the church in Philippi. Timothy was with Paul when they helped start the church in Thessalonica. And now Paul writes this final letter to his son in the faith. Paul is in a Roman prison cell. He knows that he's probably near the end of his time here on this earth. He has fought the good fight. He has run the race, Paul says. And he writes to Timothy, young Timothy, who's trying to lead the church in Ephesus. And he's offering some final instruction on how he should lead and how he should order the worship of that church in Ephesus to see what Paul had to say and how we might order our worship today. Please turn again to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 4, 5. But before we read God's word, let me call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you inspired Paul to put pen to paper so that we might have this letter of instruction to Timothy, who's trying to lead the church in Ephesus. Oh Lord, as we seek to faithfully follow you, as we seek to order our worship in a way that would bring glory and honor to you, that would be pleasing in your sight, oh God, I pray that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you. I pray as the psalmist says, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people sin. Amen. Second Timothy chapter three, beginning with verse 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Paul's final letter, final words of written instruction to Timothy, his son in the faith, and how he could lead the church in Ephesus well, is to preach the word. Paul knows that the best thing he can do for the church in Ephesus is to faithfully preach the word. Because as Paul explained in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This command to preach the word helps us see that what was at the center of the worship in the church in Ephesus and the first century of church all over was the, the preaching of the word, the lifting up of scripture, because it's the scriptures that ultimately help change our life, the scriptures that have been inspired by God. And this pattern of making sure that the scriptures are at the center of the worship service was not only true in the first century church, but true in the first century synagogue as well. We, we see it in Luke chapter four when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and they hand him the scroll from Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2. And as was his custom, we read that he, he read it. And it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And Jesus began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This quick snapshot of a synagogue worship service helps us see that the center of the service was a reading of the word of God and an explanation of the word of God. And that was in the first century synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and it continued in the first century church. Because the first century church was convinced, as Paul writes, that all scriptures breathed out by God. It's the scriptures, it's the reading and the faithful preaching of scripture that's ultimately going to change our lives. In fact, in Reformed worship, there are three basic movements to the worship service. The first part is focused on preparing our hearts to hear the word of God. The second movement is the reading and the preaching of the word of God. And the third movement is our response to the word of God. Swiss reformer John Calvin, we've got a picture of John Calvin here, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, helped establish a basic order and liturgy for the Presbyterian Church back in the 1540s. Calvin would begin the order of worship with a call to worship from the Psalms, very similar to what we did with Psalm 150. Calvin usually liked to read Psalm 124, verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then he would have an opening prayer, and in response to that prayer, there would be a song sung, a song of praise. And as they began to praise God, just like Isaiah, as they came into the presence of Almighty God through thanksgiving and praise, they were reminded of God's holiness and their own sinfulness. And so they were instructed to confess their sins to God, to pray a prayer of confession as we do. All of this is in order to prepare us to hear the word of God. Many scholars say that Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit because Calvin knew that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures that we just read in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's the Holy Spirit who who helps open the hearts of us to to, to receive the good news of of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who guides us and leads us in all truth. So Calvin began this practice of of always having a prayer of illumination just as Shanine prayed 
and I prayed. Before reading the Bible, they would pray and say, Holy Spirit, please guide us that we might hear what you want to say to us today. Because Calvin knew that we are sinful, broken people, and and if we don't ask God to help us, we may not hear what he wants to say. We have to have an open heart, so we pray for God to give us that open heart. Calvin also began this practice of preaching and teaching straight through books of the Bible because Calvin knew, as Paul points out, the day is going to come when the people will raise up teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. And Calvin said, if we just allow people to pick whatever they want to preach, they're going to pick texts that, that just they, the only texts they like, and, and that will prevent them from the people hearing the full counsel of God. And so just as we did in June and July, we preached straight through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and I had to preach on 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12. I didn't want to do that, but if you want to hear it, you can download it. But it's a controversial text, right? And it's not even in the common lectionary of many mainline denominations. But Calvin started this practice going straight through books of the Bible. In fact, he viewed worship as a time to glorify God, but also a time to instruct the people of God and what the word of God has to say. And Calvin's church in Geneva was very welcoming to children. He wanted them to hear the word of God at a very early age to learn who God is and who God's calling us to be. After preaching the word of God, then there would be this response to the word of God. He would encourage people to pray, and in the prayers of the people, he would would pray the Lord's Prayer, because that's the prayer that Jesus gave to us in Matthew 6. He would encourage them to, to participate that. And then he would encourage them to stand and affirm their faith, singing the words of the Apostles' Creed. Now, I'm not going to make you sing the Apostles' Creed. I don't even know how that melody goes. I don't know. Have you heard the Apostles' Creed taken to music? Maybe it's done somewhere. But anyway, he he would sing. And in fact, Calvin was so committed to making sure that the service of worship was all about the word of God that he only had them sing from the Psalter, from the Psalms. They would do these chants, these Psalms. Well, obviously, we don't do that anymore. In fact, we recognize there's lots of different styles of music. And we want to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Christ. And so, yes, we have three worship services, but three different types of music at all three services. We've got a gospel service at 8.30 with wonderful songs like I'll Fly Away, Nothing But the Blood, Victory in Jesus. Then we have a traditional service like this one at 11 a.m., which, you know, as soon as Labor Day is over, the choir will be back and we'll be singing great songs like, you know, Lift High the Cross or Mighty Fortresses Our God. And then we have a contemporary service that's very casual and we invite people to come as they are and they sing great praise songs. Uh, you know, uh, Chris Tomlin's got some great ones, you know, and we, we sing all these wonderful songs. But all the songs have as their subject and focus God, bringing all glory to God. In fact, they have, the best songs have always been inspired by the scriptures. You can see how the scriptures helped inspire the great hymns. But I recognize that everybody has a different favorite. And so as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, he has become all people so that he might win the more. We've said, hey, let's have three different styles of music. So when you invite your friend to say, hey, I want you to come to First Pres to worship with us. What kind of music do you like? And they go, well, I like traditional. And we go, well, we got that. Or if they say, hey, I like contemporary, I say, well, we got that. That's why I actually like gospel, kind of bluegrass. I say, hey, we got that. If they say rap, I say, I don't know who has that. You know, I mean, I don't know what to do with rap, but God bless them. But just for a sense of experiment, so you can get the idea of what we're trying to do here, think of your favorite hymn or your favorite praise song. Just think about what's the name of your favorite hymn or favorite praise song. Got it? On the count of three, I want you to say loud enough for me to hear the name of your favorite hymn or favorite praise song. Ready? One, two, three. Lift high the cross. I didn't hear anything you guys said. We all have different preferences. We don't speak with a unified voice when it comes to music, but when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to the gospel of grace, there's one central message every Sunday here in this place, that we are saved 
by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And we turn to the scriptures because we know as the apostle Paul tells us, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we turn to the word of God, we hear God speak to us, and our lives are forever changed, and we live in response to the word of God Monday through Saturday. Yes, on Sunday we are the church gathered, but Monday through Saturday we are the church scattered, living out the truth of God's word. Simply put, what is reformed worship? It's worship that is saturated with the word of God. Because it's the word of God that ultimately changes our lives so that we might become more like Christ and ultimately he might be glorified in our lives today. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who has made yourself known to us in your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for all of your many blessings. We pray, O Lord, that as we continue to bring glory and honor to you through worship, Lord, that we might continue to have open hearts as we turn to your word, that your word might shape us and transform us And Lord, that we, as a part of our strategy, would be bold in inviting others to join us in worship, to hear the many different styles of music that we have, but also to hear the one central message, the message of your grace, that we're all sinners, saved by your grace, grateful for your grace, grateful for the gift of your son. And God, we thank you for the way that your holy, inspired word helps transform us so that we might better serve as an instrument of his grace, that we might better reflect his love. Guide us and lead us as we seek to bring all glory and honor to you. Your sons, let me pray, and all God's people said, amen.